I have a slightly cynical view of some of the labels, because when you strip the labels all away, whether it's CSR, whether it's environmental, whether it's ESG, whether it's creating shared value, you're always looking either for a risk reduction or to have a positive impact on something. This is The Strategy Behind with Adam Cox. As part of an ongoing series, we're exploring the strategy behind sustainability. In this episode, sustainability and insurer's view, understanding environmental, social and governance risks with Mr. James Wallace. member with the United Nations Environment Program PSI Initiative, has built a career in corporate responsibility, specialising in environmental, social and governance issues such as climate change, human rights, responsible investing, environmental management and assessing the impact businesses have on the world. Currently sits with the ESG team at the Allianz Group and has recently co-led and published an incredibly interesting working paper and framework for how certain sectors of the economy can strengthen their contributions to build more resilient, inclusive, and sustainable businesses and communities. Mr. James Wallace. James, welcome. Thank you very much, and thank you for coming to Munich. Yeah, look, it's a beautiful day. Any excuse to get out of London, I'll take it. (laughs) I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I think this is incredibly timely, particularly given everything that's happening in the world at the moment, environmentally, socially, politically. This topic around ESG, environment, social and governance issues, and how organisations, governments, uh, not-for-profits, individuals are starting to think about making real impact, real change about how things are done, how governments are ran, the policies that they make, how organizations make decisions and put ESG matters in the center of their strategy to improve how they do business on those vectors, environmentally, socially, and from a governance perspective. This is going to be a really good conversation. But before we get into that, I'd love to hear a little bit about your own personal journey. How did you build a career in this space because you have made a career by making a difference i'd I'd love to hear your story yeah well i mean it's been about 15 years in the industry now so um i came out here to allianz in about 2013 to help set up uh the screening of their sensitive business transactions but um i i guess i got into this primarily through environmental aspects And I always had a love of it when I was a child and growing up, sort of WWF, protection species, um, save the Madagascar rainforest campaign and lemurs and things like that. And, um, you know, when I went to university, I I was never entirely set on what I wanted to do. I didn't know. I grew up in the hotel and service industry through family businesses. And, you know, there was a debate whether I would actually go into the family business or go to university. And I ended up doing sort of more environmental things in my degree, environmental impact assessment. But then when I left, I went into banking, did a graduate position for four years. And that was a great buzz, you know, for the first two years, learning about corporations, how things work, the sort of the energy of London and and working there. But uh, after a while, you sort of felt a little bit that maybe I'm just, 
a part of a giant sort of money-making machine, and mm-hmm. maybe there's certain practices which I'm not entirely comfortable with, and maybe I would prefer to try to change something about that or do something a bit different. And um, I, I sort of took stock of my situation, decided to go back to study and did my master's degree in environmental technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I ended up coming straight back into finance, really, because once you actually start looking for jobs again, you started finding that my experience within financial services was actually quite beneficial to combine the environmental side, the professional qualifications now in sort of pollution, technology, law, economics, and the application of those things. And I ended up coming back in to really try to change finance for a bit better. That's a really interesting point, using finance as the change agent in businesses, in organizations, given the nature that something like finance does show up as a major part of how organizations operate. So it's a very impactful way to move forward. In the same token, my experience, I've seen a lot of students who have come out with ESG qualifications and they're passionate about the environment and social matters. If they are looking to build a career, they will head down the path of an NGO and you know, they're very passionate. They do amazing work, but it doesn't always necessarily have that global impact that, uh, that a lot of these people are actually looking to deliver onto the world and make a meaningful dent and really move these issues forward. Did you find that you fell back into finance as the next best alternative because you thought that you could make a stronger impact by implementing change from the inside? Um, I guess it was an inevitable movement in some ways. And, you know, just because I had four years experience in that, that was a very attractive proposition to the employers. And I I went into consulting for two years after that. And um, even then, I had some experience of how banks work and finances. It, It didn't prepare me at all for the detail understanding I needed for the insurance sector mm-hmm. and investment completely different completely new terminology ways of working and you know, it, was, it was a brave new world really and mm. you still learn every day really and um, so, so going into that I think was partly by chance and also during the studies I had the perception I wanted to focus more on environmental management and you know the classic sort of environmental topics but during the consulting I actually found that not quite as fulfilling in some oh, respects that okay. I found conventional environmental management systems, impact assessment, construction standards of buildings. It was quite methodical. You followed a process and you managed something, but I, I guess it probably didn't really answer that kind of trying to change mm-hmm. business a little. It, it was great. It was protecting thing, but for me, I guess I'd got a little bit of taste for that world and I guess I wanted to get back into it a little bit too and try to change that. So I, I think, yeah, I, I was a little bit underwhelmed with conventional environmental things and wanted to get, I guess, a bit more into the strategic and changing the business a bit more that I'd yeah become accustomed to. Which is pretty good from a self-awareness perspective because a lot of people who will come out and do have that passion and drive with environmental would be, I'm absolutely not going in that direction. This mm. is a part of the problem. Whereas changing and evolving 
an organization from the inside, one, you have a higher probability of success, and two, you can really understand the internal dynamics mm-hmm. of what's actually going on and then moving that forward. As you look across you know, your peers, obviously when you studied environment uh, environmental studies, did you see this tension of people kind of not knowing which way to go? Do I tie myself to a tree or do I walk into an oil and gas company? Like what is the right way to apply you know, this education? Yeah, I mean, you, you certainly had a lot of people who were very much wanting to do different things. I, I think there was generally a, quite a common view that you wanted to change the world for the better. That I guess the process and means and the manner by which you would proceed to do that were very different. So you had some who just wanted to go into consulting, whether that was ecological consulting, counting bats and worms in a field. Um, they would go and do that. There were some who very much wanted to go into policy and said, want to make policy, environmental policy, EU policy, pollution, energy, those sort of things. That's where it's at. I think those who wanted to go into business and change business were probably fewer. Mm -hmm. And I think they were also mainly people who had been in business before. And I'm talking more in the corporation working for a company rather than a unique startup sort of Mm -hmm. venture sort of thing. Yeah. And I think some of us were also a bit more cynical about the way the world works and the reality and that dynamic you were talking about, about the interaction between policy, business. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that was a real, that, that four years within the banking system initially was a real eye-opener about how conservative some of the industries are how they're very successful at doing what they were doing at the time, pre-crisis. And to change such gigantic organizations and systems which are embedded in doing things the way they are is incredibly difficult. And to do so, you would need to almost talk their language and take things quite slowly to get the confidence. Because I, I think when you look at the people working in financial services and other industries, they're not bad people, you know, personally, they, they can be very committed to environmental issues. It's just their particular role, job and livelihood is geared to a certain structure and means of financing and rewards and objectives. And this is, you know, making that linkages between why these things are connected and why it's in their interest can be just a bit challenging outside of their normal daily role and objectives. So that was a sort of a big shift in some ways. When you look at people who are entering into larger corporations and they're looking to make that big impact. Mm-hmm. What are the dynamics within the senior decision makers, the executive leadership teams? There's definitely been an uptick in awareness. Mm-hmm. Are you starting to see that awareness now come into action? Because this is what a lot of people within society are now saying, you know, we're doing the right things, we're thinking the right things, but we're not seeing the actions out of the large corporates, out of big government really grab this by the throat and do what needs to be done? It's a complex dynamic. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess there's several layers. Um, So I saw just yesterday a recent uh, study by Harvard Business School, Mm -hmm. and they did a survey of CEOs and board members of various multinationals. And it, it quite resonated with me because there's different personalities in the board and it's a matter of chance who is the CEO. And they were saying that like almost a quarter of these are the cynics mm. who 
don't want to do anything. They don't believe in it. They don't care. It's, you know, shareholder value, quarterly earnings, and, and that's that. You get probably the other quarterly the optimists who are seeking, pushing, and absolutely feel it's fundamental to the business. But then you've got a large body sort of in the middle, mm. some more positive, some more negative. So it, it depends a lot on the personality and the politics of the board. And they, they, they mentioned one thing, which was when you're sort of trying to engage for environmental, socially responsible change in organization, you have to be patient and look for your moments and opportunities because there's usually a point within the management, the personalities, the politics, the financial well-being of the organization. There are times you can make a change mm -hmm. and push for something. So I ask you for more budget at the wrong time is never going to go down well. Yeah, correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so this is one thing that the politics is certainly there. I, I think people rocking up and thinking, you know, we're going to radically change and transform. Often the first mistake that they make is using a whole load of new technology from an industry that's alien to them. Mm. Talking their language is a courtesy. And I, I think, you know, you take the insurance industry, it's been an industry which wasn't affected too significantly by the financial crisis and been doing things very successfully for 300 years. So you should really understand their metrics, how the business works and the terminology um, if you want to change that. And I think that's where a lot of NGOs and passionate individuals fail quite often, talking the right language. Yeah, completely. And it's not only the right language, but it's also the delivery and communication style of the messages themselves. You know, It's not what the messenger says, it's how the messenger is heard. So I'd like to focus on the quality and the content of the message itself mm -hmm. and unpack some of the context and some of the drivers that sit behind these messages and how leaders are interacting and dealing with these messages around the ESG issues when they land in their lap. So if we just pick one topic uh, under the ESG portfolio, let's go with climate change. It's one that most people are going to be very familiar with and start to unpack the drivers of what underpins the message. So from an environmental perspective, the tangible evidence that supports the scientific community's claims behind what's driving climate change is now relatively not only self-evident, and we can see this by looking out the window, but the events that climate change drive are now increasing in frequency and velocity. Mm -hmm. you know, what do we have? Increased flooding in India, China, Mozambique, increased fires and droughts, California, Australia, South Africa, ocean levels reclaiming land, uh, Florida, Kiribati, Solomon Islands, major fractures in the Larsen ice shelf in Antarctica, melting ice sheets in Greenland, the impact on wildlife, puma, rhinoceros, the collapse of the second largest colony of emperor penguins recently. You know, we're experiencing the highest rate of animal extinction at the moment in over 65 million years. You know, the scientific case that underpins these messages has moved from graphs on white paper and talking about CO2 output in the atmosphere that we can't necessarily see into very tangible things that we can't push back on anymore. 
You combine this with the social trend that governments and businesses are now starting to feel the pressure from. The rise of the green economy, Extinction Rebellion protests going global, uh, Greta Thunberg and the school strike for climate change going global. Consumer preferences are now starting to demand greater transparency across the full supply chain of businesses and the products that, and services that they provide. Carbon neutral businesses are now being seen as having a competitive advantage when it comes to sales cycles. The behavior and actions of society are changing and the pace of that change is increasing. So when you start to put all these together, they are all affecting businesses and governments, regardless if they're acting on the challenges or not. You know, it's pretty universal now that there are both direct and indirect impacts on all organizations and all countries across the world. So to point to your HBR comment, we are hearing a lot of lip service from leaders who are approaching these topics, and we are starting to see some action, but much of society has yet to see a universal acceptance of the facts and the evidence that are driving the messages, let alone a unified and meaningful set of actions from industry or large enterprise to address these challenges. So in your position, how do you see leaders think about and internalize these trends and these drivers of the messages when it comes to creating responsible strategies and driving action across the organizations that they're ultimately responsible for? Yeah, I mean, I guess any company or a leading company is a composition of those personalities and circumstances. No two are the same. I think in my experience, there's the similarities, but no two are the same. I think from the perspective of Allianz, we've got a, a great CEO who's really personally committed to the climate change agenda and has sort of led the way in challenging the business to divest and stop insuring coal-related assets, which has been huge. And um, you, you've seen a lot of traction in the financial services sector, particularly in the insurance and investment side, on actually stopping that now. I think Allianz has historically always been very pro-climate change about emissions reduction, get your house in order, that side of things. But what we saw since 2013 was really uh, a huge uptake in campaign groups and NGOs becoming more sophisticated with their tactics and getting to understand the business more and understanding what our role is in things like climate change, the energy sector and others as an insurer, as an investor, financer, and understanding that we can do some things, but we can't necessarily do everything. And we talk about the power to do things and, and things like that. If we just consider Allianz's role in the global industry, we are probably one of a dozen insurers globally who have made that move on coal. Mm -hmm. But there's over a thousand PNC insurers in North America alone. Yeah. So, so that, that, that's the scale. I think that they're important leaders signaling and doing things, but there still needs to be a shift. And I think sometimes the perception in the public and, you know, the social media campaigns, you get, you get this sort of perception of a global movement. But there's, there's still this huge body. It's almost like the personality thing that there's this sort of very negative percentage, this very positive percentage, and it's slowly getting this mass in the middle to move in the right direction. Um, but I think once you have that big campaign, so I think you can get the politicians to actually start moving because they're often some of the last to mm. make the changes because regulation's hard. Yeah. 
um, but it does make it easy for business, and particularly the smaller businesses who don't have that reputational exposure like a, a big player like Allianz, you know, because we've got personal lines in all European markets. We're, we're a target for NGOs. They want to talk to us because of our influence, because of our connections, because, you know, we've got lots of public uh, customers. Mm-hmm. So when you're a mid-sized company, you don't have that exposure. You don't necessarily have responsible investors coming in to ask you why you're doing this. You don't have the same pressures and circumstance. You know, we will take some other peers and competitors with us who are in that sort of next run around, but making that whole body underneath, you need sort of that regulatory role to come a bit more into play or the societal norm. It becomes just what they do as standard. Hmm. Um, but you still got that, that perception of personality. Yeah. And it always comes down to people. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, one of the key failures of any CSR sustainability approaches that sometimes you've got lots of great grassroots enthusiasm from the employees, whether it's recycling or a charity day, you might have board level aspirations and agreement, but it's the middle management, which is the challenge. And often there's the technical experts in the middle, which might mean that the board members' commitment and aspirations may not pan out the way they envisaged or in a practical sense, yeah. which I'm sure you, you know from your work and yeah. strategy. Yeah, absolutely. It's the practical application of the will of the leadership in the organization, and that's the disconnect. But you bring up another really interesting point, and it's almost like there's been a evolution of what sustainability means in organizations over the years. So uh, let, me, let me put this into financial services perspective. So back in the day, there were organizations that made good moral decisions about how they do business. And this was baked into their strategy and their identity. And a lot of this was driven by where the leadership's head was at at the time. And then maybe over the last two to three decades, we've seen a string of changes within organizations. The, uh, the mental models of how businesses approach these ESG topics, which has then morphed into newer thinking, newer disciplines, also with newer naming conventions, you know, sustainability departments, corporate and social responsibility, CSR, social impact, shared value, conscious capitalism, ESG. Is this actually an example of continuous improvement of the thinking and behavior within the financial services industry to drive more meaningful actions which address these global challenges? So I I think ESG has been extremely successful in the investment sphere and with the spillover into other financial services. And that's maybe because ESG was always a taxonomy of issues, just a way of categorizing the wealth and array of environmental, social and governance issues, rather than a management approach or, or a systematic way of doing things like CSR might have been perceived to be. Um, so that was very successful. Of course, now we're sort of, we have the circular economy, we have creating shared value, we have social impact, social entrepreneurship, and all these sort of things, um, I, I guess maybe I, I have a slightly uh, cynical view of some of the labels because when you strip the labels all away, whether it's CSR, whether it's environmental, whether it's ESG, whether it's creating shared value for 
two stakeholders together, you're always looking either for a risk reduction of the risks or to have a positive impact on something. And, you know, whether that's in an ESG aspect where we're trying to mitigate child labor in our transactions or whether you're CSR trying to invest in education, local communities that are impoverished, or whether you're creating shared value of creating some new wonderful startup in uh, an African community for clean water and how that works, or some kind of not-for-profit mm. pharmaceutical thing. It's kind of all under the same when you strip away the language. And, and once you strip away that language, that terminology, that things... I think your communication comes easier to business people. Mm -hmm. It becomes simpler. It's more in plain English. And um, maybe you have less consultants trying to sell you things in plain languages. <laughs> God forbid less consultants. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. And it's interesting, your point earlier, if I just tie it all together now in relation to that journey and, and the labeling of these activities. Yeah particularly when you look at those trends and then you line them up against what's happening politically, you know, the rise of nationalism, the United States bowing out of the Paris Agreement. There's a lot of things happening here where protectionism seems to be returning mm. and there seems to be this lack of awareness that irrespective of what's going on, we're not in a local economy, we're in a global economy. Yeah. And when you look at the ESG topics and everything that, that it falls under, under that umbrella, it really does take everyone to come along. And when it comes to bringing everyone along, there's definitely a case here for good guidance to help people and organizations and leaders really stay together as a collective on these shared challenges and you know, stay true to the path, which leads me to your recent publication with the United Nations Environmental Program, this uh, Principles of Sustainable Insurance. Mm -hmm. It's a fascinating read for a couple of reasons. One, it is in simple English. It's not overly complex. So it's consumable, which Good. I really like. Two, it's a practical guide. It's how organizations can pick up this roadmap, these frameworks, and apply them in practical application, as opposed to being way too theoretic, way too high level. And three, I think... There's a lot in it that goes well and truly beyond the insurance industry and the audience that it's written for. There's a lot of really good transferable principles. But I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on this statement. The insurance industry is incredibly well positioned to be a major change agent with how business does business. Yes. <laughs> Explain. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think it's a yes and no question. Okay. So... so I think, yes, insurance is an incredibly valuable tool. It protects companies when they've got a problem with extreme weather. If there's a product defect, if your cargo goes missing, and, and you know, it's an incredibly valuable thing that underwrites every aspect of our modern economy and society. But it's very hard to develop weird and wonderful new products or things uh, because you have to find a customer to buy it. Mm. So th there's still, you know, a market reality that, you know, you, you if you price in your product too much for a future risk that's not going to appear in the next year, nobody's going to buy that. So, so you, 
you can move the dial, you can move towards things, but you need to be mindful that at least on the insurance side, you're working normally with annual contracts for renewal. Mm-hmm. So if you hike the premium too much, you're out of business. Correct. So a large part of the insurance industry, or at least on you know the industrial type and commercial insurance, goes through brokers. Yes. Big brokers. And they don't retain the premiums like insurers. They don't have the assets, which you're meant to generate profit to pay the claims when the worst happens. They're a fee-based yeah. service. So they're also not as exposed. So you've actually got a relationship dialogue with these guys as well. So any change you as an insurer makes has to be done in partnership with the brokers, then the reinsurers who are insuring the insurers. And, and that's one of the un- unique characteristics of the insurance sector that you take a, a big office block or a power station, it's never insured by one insurer. It's insured by dozens or hundreds, even taking multiple shares in this big sort of web of cross-sharing of risk yeah. and, and finances. In the book. Yeah. yeah. So so sometimes making these fundamental changes can be quite challenging. I, I guess where we came from with the guide mm-hmm. and everything like that, you know, certainly us in that leadership capacity, we were having dialogues with the NGOs and sort of, you know, trying to make that change. We had some pressure. We also had CEOs and leadership that felt we were doing the right thing. But I think, um, I, I guess the guide served several purposes. Mm-hmm. One, it's there to help that next tier of insurers and, and finances about how to get started, who may not have the resources of an alliance or the people or the same pressure they want to do something, but they need help in how to make it practical because it's a big subject. Yeah. You, you look at those checklists and there must be like 50, 60 different risks and you can get easily bogged down in the detail. You know, every single risk has a best practice guide or standard, which can be several hundred pages long. You look at, you know, UNESCO World Heritage Sites, there's a three or four hundred page manual on what makes a protected site. And underwriters and asset managers, they're, they're busy people already. And there's a question, do we need every single one of our underwriters trained to be a human rights legal specialist? Or do we want to get them underwriting? And this is going to be the case for the mid player as well. So creating something really quick, really easy, something where they can pick things which are most relevant for the types of insurance and business they do was really vital. So... That was important to facilitate the industry moving along because this interconnectedness of the sector means we have to move everyone slowly and up because of the time horizon too. Yeah, completely. And to your example, if you have a group of insurers all insuring a single asset or building or business and they all have different ways for how they're assessing the risk, it can create the opportunity to really start bumping things out of line a little bit. And that's why I really like this document that you've co-led for the United Nations. It's a practical roadmap that shows how companies can begin to manage the ESG topics. And it also shows what are the specific questions they need to begin asking internally to help them be better informed, which ultimately lead them to making better decisions that make the positive impacts on the issues that we're all facing. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Strategy Behind with Adam Cox. (laughs) 
Another thing I really like about your ESG guide are some of the frameworks that it contains. These are really user-friendly and highly valuable tools. And one framework in particular I want to spend a few moments unpacking is what you've called the ESG Risk and Economic Sector Heat Map. Now, this is a tool to help businesses get an understanding of the different ESG risks across Mm -hmm. different sectors of the economy. So if I paint a little bit of a verbal picture here, it's a matrix table style framework with down the left-hand side, you have a list of different environmental, social and governance issues like climate change, protected sites, unsustainable practices, animal testing, human rights, controversial weapons, bribery and corruption and so on. And across the top of the table, you have a pretty comprehensive list of the different sectors of the economy, agriculture, defense, fashion, technology, energy, construction, transport, and so on. So within this matrix is the heat map. And what you've done is that you've plotted where these risks, where these hotspots show up based on the intersection of a specific ESG issue and a specific sector of the economy. And I completely understand that this framework was built primarily for the insurance sector Mm -hmm. because it helps evaluate and understand risks and can help develop the insurance products of the future. But I actually think it's an incredibly valuable framework for the business community as a whole. And it's this sort of tool that can help leaders make better decisions. It can help governance departments guide businesses away from operational risks and ensure that they're not walking into these hotspots unknowingly. But the thing I really like about this framework is that it's applicable to businesses of all sizes. Even, for example, let's say a startup. You know, someone is thinking about creating a new business. Using this tool will help them look further down the road and over the business horizon to help them identify any potential ESG challenges that they might be coming into if they choose a particular strategy. And having that foresight early in the thinking can help them make wiser decisions up front instead of dealing with the actual problems when the business is much more complex. So this is just one example of what I believe is the framework's wide applicability across the economy. Now, I believe that this was a bit of a collaborative effort of the PSI, the Principles of Sustainable Insurance Initiative. Um, tell me, who was involved in this? We had a, a great collaboration of sort of a working group. Um, we had some fantastic colleagues in uh, Munich, Re, Zurich, AXA, MapFrame Brazil, Santam in South Africa, uh, RSA in the UK, academia, several universities. I, I, I can't name check everyone, but of course. they've all been, you know, really positive and, and great in the collaboration on this. And we've all been members of the PSI for some years. We've all been look at these issues, but we all had a stake in this particular exposure on commercial industrial insurance. And we were all seeing the same issues coming up and same pressures on us. And the challenges that, you know, we want to sort of mitigate these risks in our business. Sometimes it makes very good commercial sense because, you know, say you've got a, a dam potentially where involuntary resettlement has not been handled well, the security contracts have been heavy handed impacts protected species, the environmental impacts that hasn't been conducted correctly, you could have delays in the project, which could have a knock-on impact. You might have legal challenges, and, and this can only have a financial impact for the project owner, the government supporting it, potentially then the insurance as well. So there's always a good reason. And so this working group sat around going, okay, what are the sectors that we have? 
What are the risks that we commonly see? And then on the second page, we had the lines of business. So the types of insurance and underwrite, whether it's property, construction, engineering, cargo, credit and surety, and all these different types of insurance covers have a different exposure in relation to the sector that you're insuring. So, you know, if you insure the property of BMW, you're going to be concerned about extreme weather impacts, site zoning. If you're doing uh, uh, marine cargo for a mining corporation, you're not going to be too worried about those same issues. And so that's what the guide tries does, because not every insurer will be involved in every line of business or underwriting. So we used our experience as a group to say, okay, these are the types of insurance underwriting we see, and they could be in. These are the risks. These are things. And you know that there's, there's hundreds of ESG lists of issues and factors. All the responsible investment houses are coming up with these ratings. It's all part of the methodology. We just did this quite openly. We make it clear this is not perfect. We don't have all the answers, and that's why it's an open consultation. So everybody, if, if you think you can do this better, you know it better, come and tell us, provide feedback, and we want to make an iterative process over time too. So it's nothing that's, this is now you know, the, the Bible and you will sort of adhere to it. It's, it's maybe very flexible too, because when you're actually implementing the management of ESG in an organization, often it's different functions have control. Sometimes it'll be in the underwriting, sometimes it's in risk, sometimes comms, sometimes in the CEO office or something. So it depends upon the personalities, yeah. again, internally. It can depend on your regulatory framework. You know, mm-hmm. France has stronger regulatory regimes on climate than others and, and this has a fact and also there's this cultural element too about what ESG issues are important to your company so for example the German market is not so keen on nuclear energy mm-hmm. and nuclear weapons and things whereas in France it's very different Yeah, um, you see this with sort of animal welfare issues much greater folks than others but this kind of ties into part of the challenge that you touched on before, that we are a global company underwriting risks and transactions across developing markets. But we need to balance that sort of, we're doing business in countries with a very different culture and practices, but we are a German headquarter company and the investors expect some expression of the ethical mm-hmm. aspect. You know, they're investing in a German headquartered global company. Yeah. And and so this is sometimes a challenge that we have internally when we're screening ESG risks, that we have this dynamic with the local underwriters or asset managers say, you know, well, culturally, we don't necessarily care about that issue. So, yes, but as a global organization, we have more stakeholders to consider in this role. And so that's why we need to do something about that particular issue or topic, mm-hmm. which again separates out this smaller national-based companies have a very different... Take on this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and rightfully so. Have you seen any correlation in relation to the financial performance of how organizations actually put out their kind of AGM numbers who embrace ESG work? I mean, there's there's a lot of studies now. Um, Again... Uh, one of the half oppressors, George Seraphim, has been sort of probably the most 
obvious proponents of this. Uh, often it comes from the investment side, looking at, you know, investment performance. Often in the downtimes, you've got better protection and there's sort of all sorts of things, better access to capital. So it, it's kind of there. And most of the responsible investors will say, yes, this is definitely there. Um, insurance is slightly harder because you're looking at claims ratios and mm -hmm. things which will lead to an insured loss. And sometimes these ESG risks are not necessarily representing an insured loss per se. So if you have exposure to child labor, does it lead to a financial loss that would trigger a claim? Yeah. So you're trying to make this connection sometimes. Sometimes it's slightly moral, sometimes slightly ethical based on reputation. But this is something we're going to be looking at in phase two, really, because we have to get this kind of standard framework and understanding of the issues and things to be able to start interpreting potentially some similar data sets. Mm. So once you have more standardization, you say, okay, well, we're seeing more claims from companies with this profile or in this type of line of underwriting with these type of risks. And certainly you see the class thing, you know, companies who have a worse fines for environmental malpractice, um, there's some logical assumptions to be drawn yeah. from that. I think one thing that's quite interesting in the sort of SME market of insurance, depending on how you structure methodology, there are certain indications that better ESG managed or friendly companies do have a lower claims ratio. Oh, but okay. This, this is quite new. The data is still under development and it very much depends on the methodology. So how you set up the study and everything. So this is something we want to get into in the PSI. We want to look at, but first of all, we had to develop a basis for common understanding. Yeah, makes perfect sense. Have you seen businesses proactively change either their, their model, their go-to-market strategy, how they do what they do, courtesy of the gentle hand of influence that come from risk mitigation strategies like insurance? I think there's always been a flow through from insurance and for when in premiums are going to go up. You know, that this is inevitable whether you're talking about flood insurance cover. You know, if you can no longer afford the premium for your house because of flooding, that, that's a problem. That's when you get the government stepping in with sort of solutions. Same principle for motor if you're a bad driver. Mm. So insurance will always have an impact in terms of pricing and influence per se. I think in an ESG perspective, um, maybe. It's hard to say at the moment. So I guess when we set up our transaction screening process, we, we screen about 600 transactions a year for sensitive business risks within Alliance, and about half of those are subject to ongoing monitoring and assessment. A few of those are subject to actually direct engagement with the client or broker. Sometimes it's not always that you're making a change. Sometimes about you're actually understanding what they do and what is their perspective and potentially reality. Because, you know, sometimes what you see in the media or what an NGO is stating they do is incorrect. Alliance has been accused of things in the past which were completely wrong and that perhaps wasn't malicious on the part of the NGO journalist. It was just a matter of not understanding or ignorance. 
So sometimes you have to treat some of these negative stories or perhaps with the reality, and there's often a greater diversity of issues and things, which is why part of the first step about changing the practice in a company that you insure or invest in is about hearing their side of the story first as well. Because, you know, we are not judges, we're not the jury, we're not a government making the law. We're trying to protect our business from risk, reputation risk, negative financial risk, and we want to invest and insure good companies and good clients. Yeah, yeah. Your point just then in relation to the role of a government, as I think about just from a risk assessment perspective, as insurers roll through ESG and they embrace it and they read the white paper and they're doing all these good things, what is the role of government in this? Mm -hmm. They must have a pretty sharp eye on this. So with the PSI project, one of the positive things is that um, we've had discussions with uh, the German Insurance Association, other regulatory authorities who have welcomed this for the sector because, like you said, it was something easy for them to understand and it was the first comprehensive guide in this area for insurance of this type. So they hadn't actually seen something like this before that they could then engage with their members and say, okay, here is the basis that you can potentially manage these issues and now they're pushing that out for consultation to their members. So if you wait for regulators to regulate something they don't understand, that can be a bad thing. (laughs) But, you know, often they are ex-professionals who have a good understanding of the issues too. But it it took this sort of collaboration to actually put down a market that there'd been sort of small bits of work done on this before in certain areas, but nothing quite so comprehensive in tackling this. So this was a very good platform for certain regulators. So, okay, this is a great potential standard that we can build off and engage on and understand. So this has been welcomed. I know you have four key principles within uh, within the document. Would you like to just kind of kind of go over them briefly just so listeners can have an understanding? The PSI initiative. Yes, correct. These are the four principles that we sign up to as an organization when joining the PSI initiative. So it's about trying to promote the role of insurers with environmental and social issues. It's about collaboration with peers, with partners, with government, with academia. Uh, we commit to reporting and disclosing on our progress each year. This is always important for the UN to make sure there's some authenticity in your sign-up. And it's about integrating, I believe, into sort of our, our risk management and on all the aspects of our business you know, no, no matter what. And, you know, we've done many projects with the PSI over the years. I mean, I've been involved in for about a decade, probably, or more. Um, sometimes it's been on disaster resilience. You know, another main role of the insurance industry, we, we did stuff on wildfires in Australia, led by Insurance Australia Group previously a couple of years ago. And, you know, touching on that issue, Insurance has been great at collaborating for certain risk transfer tools. You know, African Risk Capacity Tool provides certain triggered payouts for certain disasters. You know, and this is again underlying the role, but often needs a pool of insurers working together. It's like Flood Re, the, the, the service in the UK to cover homes not fully protected by flood cover insurance at an affordable rate. But I think within the PSI, there's other projects that we look at as well because there's 
personal lines issues, you know, your home, your motor, travel, there's life and health business. We're looking at how maybe climate change might impact life and health business uh, and, and all of our different roles in the property and casualties. So we look at all of these different things within the PSI. The UN body also provides a very good platform for lobbying for change with government, coming back to the point you were making earlier. So sometimes it takes a collaboration and collection of insurers to say, okay, we would support you governments in making this type of change rather than just one of us lobbying for the particular position. And, you know, we're not lobbying for things which are sort of very self-interest. It's usually for a wider societal interest, you know, improved mm-hmm. environmental or social standards. Um, so so it's, it's a fairly wide agenda. Um, we're working on projects in sort of... Uh, understanding our climate exposure across the different types of underwriting and how we can meet the climate Paris climate target agreements. And um, this is quite challenging because, okay, you can understand how much emissions you have from an office, but if you're underwriting a client for their liability cover, what proportion of their emissions are you facilitating or responsible for? Mm. So that's quite challenging. And then if you're looking forward to the completion date of the Paris Climate Agreement, how do you get a transition path to reducing that exposure to limiting to a two-degree change? Yeah, and surely the role of business and a particular client, in, you know, from an insurance perspective, a particular client's business activities has to play a role in this. Like it's been widely published, just to pick one random example. Airbus at the moment are doing some really interesting work on putting electric engines in long haul jets. Mm-hmm. You know, this is going to have a massive effect on their, their carbon output, which I imagine would have a massive effect from an underwriting perspective on how an insurer looks at them through ESG eyes. Is this a circumstance that by businesses starting to get ahead of the curve and really embrace the change that needs to happen based on everything that's happening environmentally and socially will become a financially attractive offer when looking at areas of the P&L, like, mm-hmm. the, like the cost of insurance and their premiums. I, I think the, the, the example you mentioned plays a great role in the investment side. So the, the kind of example you mentioned, you, you can see sort of the companies innovating to make some real strong steps, they're going to be steps up for leadership and you kind of overlay your investment portfolios with that sort of positive weighting or negative weighting and you, you shift your portfolios accordingly and mm. you know Allianz actually has sort of an engagement process where the worst performance in our portfolio are actually engaged with before divesting and, and so this kind of works very well on the investment side. I, I think for the insurance side the challenge remains is for an airline company would whether they're innovating in the types of engines impact their property cover probably not per se mm-hmm. in the next year and the likelihood of claims against their property yeah um, would it affect their liability maybe mm-hmm. maybe their credit insurance if they're getting involved in something too risky a little bit yeah so, so you have to have that lens, which is that second page of our guide mm-hmm. in some ways. Yeah. Um, but obviously, we would be looking at clients who have a particularly bad reputation from the insurance side that we would not want to do business with 
it might be a red flag that it could be a big claim or risk here. Yeah, I was going to say by bad you mean exposure to claims or yes. by bad you mean through the eyes of the ESG and reputationally bad that would then cause us problems by doing business with them. They could be a sign of bad management that might lead to claims. It's two different perspectives in some ways that, you know, often insurance is fundamentally about risk and mitigation of risk. And the mitigation of risk is the opportunity. Mm. So whilst you might have certain uh, more incentives on the investment side for focusing in on those top performers, you can do the same in the insurance, but you're always more concerned about getting rid of sort of the, the bad performers off your books so you don't make losses. Of course. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. In relation to this working paper, what next? I can see that this is a first draft. It's open mm -hmm. to public consultation at the moment. Is this going to be an annual evolution update of this to kind of inform the industry of the practice that we're trying to roll out? Yeah, I mean, it'll be for the working group to decide. So we're going to be reviewing the feedback up until the end of June. Um, so it's open consultation. We've read it indications that we're going to have uh, lots of feedback from around the world coming in that the working group will review. And we already have offers from certain organizations, charities, animal welfare charities. They want to provide a best practice standard to support these things. So this is all wonderful source material we're building up towards us. And, you know, we're going to take stock of this. We're going to get this sort of first draft published as a baseline and then we'll discuss whether we want to do an annual update once every two years and the potential governance that we're around. That will be a PSI hosted project source under the UN banner because we don't want it to be the Allianz standard or the Generali standard or the Zurich standard. It should be, you know, PSI and we're one of the contributors to that. Mm -hmm. So I, I think once we do that, as I said, we might start looking to see whether we can do something on the data. So proving that causal link between financial performance and ESG performance. Yeah, I think that's what everyone's interested yeah, in. Yeah, it's been done for investments. I'm not sure it's been done too well for banks yet and project finance. Mm. And certainly there is some very logical assumptions you could draw from the insurance world, but this needs this sort of structuring of the data and risks and transactions first. So that, that would certainly be our next step, I think, as well. We want to engage more widely, so more insurance associations, potentially more national regulatory bodies, uh, and just more companies signing up to it because as a poor, there's a big broker market out there mm. who are not as exposed. And, you know, some brokers are fantastic. They want to educate their clients on ESG issues. I mean, there's some great things being done by Willis, for example, on uh, risk transfer tools for the barrier reef and, and other things, you know, in incredible work being done. Um, others though, and it comes back to the personality issue again, some are on that negative side mm. and they will play price and competitors off against each other mm. and say, well, I don't necessarily want to answer all these tough questions and, yeah. you know, time is money for me because we don't take the premiums and assets. So, yeah. But investors are starting to mature up and they're starting to mm -hmm. see through a lot of this, oh, I'm three years out of retirement, I won't take the hard decision or whatever it happens to be. So some of those dynamics, yeah. again, the, the paradigm of public opinion is definitely moving. Yeah, and I, I think the advent of social media 
and the sophistication of the NGOs and campaigning groups and understanding the business models has, has really changed things. Yeah. Um, still, some of these companies don't have the public facing investor pressure because they're private or they don't have it or they're just purely B2B. So that reduces that lever somewhat mm. as well, but certainly engaging them and bring them into the tent is part of it. We're already doing that behind the scenes and it's a tool there to be used. Um, in some ways it's there for campaign groups and NGOs to say, okay, I understand now why climate change is maybe not so relevant for pet insurers. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, you know... It's context-dependent. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Different ESG risks are material to different types of insurance and insurers. Mm -hmm. And it's also an education as well for some of the investment rating houses who would treat us the same as a bank, thinking we have six months to review a transaction. We're not doing project finance. Yeah. We sometimes have hours decide on whether we go on a risk or not. And this creates a really pressured dynamic for screening a transaction, which is why it's nice and simple. Because you gotta judge within hours, is this a client I'm comfortable with? Is the specifics of the risk I'm comfortable with? And you may not have the route to finding more information if you've got a difficult broker. Yeah. If you've got uh, limited access to the client because your share of the risk is quite small financially. You may not be in the strongest position to say, well, I want more information. I want you to change what you're doing. You might be too late in the process anyway. There's no, you can't change something that's already constructed. So it's a very different dynamic of a transaction insurance mm -hmm. compared to that. So the guide actually helps educate people why we're different from banking mm -hmm. and why it's different from asset management. So that, yeah. that's, that's helpful. Absolutely. From a personal perspective, what's mm. next for you? you? Like you say, you, you've been involved with PSI for over a decade. Mm. You're here at Allianz doing good things. What's the future hold for you? I, I never expected to come into insurance, but I've probably done nearly 12 or 13 years in the industry now. And, and part of the fascination with insurance is you work with every sector of the economy. So you might be focusing on child labor and garment. You might work on palm oil. You could be on hydro dams. You could be on uh, uh, environmental management in operational sense. You could be on climate change, road safety issues for motor insurance. It's such a diverse sector. And it's kind of strange to get to that point where you sort of find it still very interesting, which is great, which is good. Um, I think um, certainly academia holds an interest mm -hmm. in some respects because sometimes these issues about proving the causal link of ESG and uh, financial performance, you don't always have the luxury of spending that much time in a corporate mm. job to devote to this sort of detailed, yeah, long-standing research. Big thinking, yeah. Yeah, so, so I think these are sort of things that maybe later in the career this might be interesting. Um, from my childhood, I was loved WWF and worked mm -hmm. for them and I, I had a corporate partnership I developed with them on the risks of environmental change for RSA insurance when I headed up CSR there um, so, so maybe there'll be some more doing good at some point as well nice excellent yeah. and finally um, where can people find you 
physically <laughs> <laughs> or metaphorically. Yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. You can mm-hmm. look me up. Munich, James Wallace, Alliance. Um, I'm there on the UNIPFI PSI site as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so just have a look there, I guess. Brilliant. Then they can reach out to you. Wonderful. Absolutely. Yes. And the consultation for the ESG and underwrite standard is open. Um, if you have particular views or want to get involved, just uh, give us a shout. Absolutely. And I'll definitely have a link to the paper and the relevant documentation in the description. So wonderful. wonderful. James Wallace, thank you so much for your time. This has thank been great. Much, Adam. Delightful. Thanks for taking the time to come and see us. Wonderful. Pleasure. Adam Cox is a trusted strategic advisor to leaders, executives, and organizations across the globe. If you're interested in Adam's work or wish to sign up for his newsletter, go to adamcox.com. The Strategy Behind is an original podcast produced and engineered by Peter Morgan with music by Judson Lee. Our executive producer is Adam Cox. And to find more episodes, visit adamcox.com forward slash podcasts.